Quite a bit in the emerging game this week between the MLC draft, the retirement of a Scotland legend, and we hear from the man himself, Tim Cutler, after his player of the match performance in the Pacific Islands Cricket Challenge final. With so much to discuss, we've also cut a longer version for our emerging cricket patrons who help keep us at emerging cricket moving forward. From as little as $2 a month, you can help the cause by becoming a patron. To sign up, log on to patreon.com forward slash emerging cricket. Welcome into the Emerging Cricket Podcast this week. Daniel Beswick here with you, but plenty of other voices this week as we go around the world. You'll hear, as always, Nick Skinner as he sits down with Nate Hayes discussing the Major League Cricket Draft, and Tim Cutler for our Pacific Update. We'll also chat about Kyle Kutzer as he calls time on his playing career. The Cricket World Cup Qualifier Playoff has also begun in Namibia with Canada doing the early running as we record today with two wins from two. Jersey and Papua New Guinea still winless as they fight for their ODI status. We'll have more on that next week, but first, Nick chats to Nate to talk Major League Cricket. Well, we're joined once again by USA correspondent for Emerging Cricket, Nate Hayes. Nate, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. It's only been a couple of weeks, I think. Yeah, well, it's always always good to catch up, and there's a lot going on in American cricket. Uh, we've seen the Major League Draft, uh, which you've been very busy with. You attended it in person, actually, which uh, we, we can talk about that in a minute. But um, just to give a quick overview to listeners who might have sort of heard that the Major League Draft happened but aren't really aware of what it was or how it works, can you just give us a, a, a brief explanation of how it all worked there's six teams first of all san francisco unicorns uh los angeles knight riders the seattle orcas the texas super kings mi new york or my new york as they want it pronounced not mumbai indians new york well <laughs> yeah it's 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 owned by the uh mumbai indians and then the washington freedom and each of these teams are associated with a, a high performance partner in some cases it's that partner is the uh primary owner of the team or the primary investor in the team. Washington, D.C., they're affiliated with the Cricket New South Wales. As you said, New York is affiliated with Mumbai Indians. Clearly, the Texas Super Kings are associated with the Chennai Super Kings and the Knight Riders, the L.A. Knight Riders, obviously the TKR and and KKR, uh, Kolkata Knight Riders. Seattle Orcas are affiliated with the Delhi Capitals, and San Francisco Unicorns are affiliated with Victoria Cricket. So what happened in the draft was we had eight rounds of basically open for any U.S. Uh, player, any player residing in the USA. And then the ninth round was uh, for U23 players. U23 is a requirement in every team, but not in a, the playing 11. The teams are going to be broken down with six overseas per playing 11 and five domestics. And yeah, so the the, the draft was a snake style which meant that they drew uh, straws to see who, who went first through last. So they'd pick one through six, and then six through one, and then one through six, and then six through one. So if you got the last pick of, of, of one round, you got the first pick of the next round. So the team that drew first was Seattle Orcas. They made the first pick, and then they had to wait to make the 12th pick uh, in their second round. So who was the top pick? And um, just looking a bit more broadly across the teams, who are some of the the big names that got picked up uh, in in the local slots? And who are some, maybe some surprises or or some names to watch out for in in the upcoming season? Well, Harmeet Singh went first to Seattle. There was a little bit of speculation that perhaps Unmuk Chan would go first with his, uh, you know, he has a big name in India, especially. He led India to a U19 World Cup 
as captain in 2012. So there was a little speculation that he would go to the team that's owned by Delhi, which is where he's from in India. But Harmeet Singh was the rightful first pick, if you ask me, based on his performances for minor league cricket. Interestingly, each of these teams had their own kind of focus when it came to, to drafting their team in Seattle focused it seemed like they gave more weight than the other teams did to minor league cricket performances if you'll remember seattle minor league team won minor league cricket this last year in 2022 and they actually ended up with uh three players from that team uh, on their seattle major league team which is very interesting uh so harmeet singh went first andre's house went second from for washington freedom he is a wiki keeper batsman opener he actually also played on that seattle minor league cricket team so there you've got your kind of like uh shohei otani and mike trout connection if you're going to talk about baseball with who those two <laughs> those two are the two best players in baseball and they both play on the same major league team so yeah washington took andre's house mi new york or my new york as they prefer it to be called fanatically chose steven taylor with the third overall pick, we we all know about him. He's a USA superstar, left-handed opening batter and right arm off-spin bowler. San Francisco took Corey Anderson. That's a big name right there. Corey once possessed the fastest ODI century for New Zealand. And in the combine, he played in just one game, but he bowled four overs which is something he didn't do much in minor league cricket. He didn't bowl a whole lot. So I think he was just, he just decided to play one game, show that the scouts that he can bowl still. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he obviously bowls from the left side and bats from the left side. So that's pretty valuable for all rounder. So a pretty valuable pick there. Uh, Knight Riders. L.A. Knight Riders, there's no surprise who they took. That was Ali, Ali Khan, Khan. Yep. Yep. <laughs> USA fast bowler, who has been in that Knight Riders franchise in Chinbego and also briefly with Kolkata until he got injured in warm-up and never really got to play a game. He was kind of a depth player for, for them anyways. Team Texas, this was a bit of a surprise, but it makes sense to me. Rusty Theron was picked number one overall for Team Texas. The, the te- At the time, they were called Team Texas. They didn't yet re- release their name until after the draft which was to nobody's surprise whatsoever the texas super kings um then following that was calvin savage on the first snake pick for the texas super kings uh calvin savage from south africa was taken he was the captain of the chicago tigers team in minor league cricket who they didn't have the chicago tigers in the first season of minor league cricket they just had them 2022 was their first year they barely made the playoffs and they did that with pretty much just three or four players contributing reg you know consistently and he was their he was their captain all-rounder pretty much he's a bowling first all-rounder who absolutely smashes the ball i knew he would go high i didn't expect him to go with number seven but that's you know great for him so that that texas team kind of doubled down on you know fast medium bowling right there which is pretty cool some other big names right after calvin was drafted unmoked was taken by The Knight Riders, the same team with Ali Khan. San Francisco then drafted again, took Liam Plunkett. So San Francisco Unicorns had Corey Anderson and Liam Plunkett in the same team, which is, they're doubling down on star power, uh, clearly, you can see. The next pick was Mumbai Indians, New York, or my New York, Hamad Azam, who was the 2021 MVP of minor league cricket. He is pretty much a batting all-rounder from Pakistan who, you know, when he's on fire, he's he's absolutely immense. He he's, His strike rate is huge. Mukhtar Ahmed went to Washington. He was a bit of a surprise. Uh, he, he never really played in minor league cricket. 
And uh, this is a pretty interesting situation here. He wasn't, um, he never played minor league cricket. He'd only been in the USA for a few weeks and he qualified as a domestic. So that that was kind of a contentious point for some of the MLC contract players was that, you know, a lot of these guys have been here for going on three years and some of these guys flew in just before the draft and get to qualify as uh, as domestics. So a lot of people felt that that was rather unfair. But it's one of those things where where do you draw the line? You know, it's it's the it's the famous associate cricket slippery slope argument <laughs> <laughs> that never seems to go away. But here we have it, you know, sloped all the way down to the to the <laughs> to the bottom of the hill. <laughs> the very ne- the the very last pick of the second round was uh, Shahan Jayasuriya, who many had him pegged in the first three, four, five picks. He slipped all the way down to twelfth place with Seattle. He's a left-hand batting, right arm off spin, mostly batting. He, he's pretty much a batter who can bowl, and in, in the mold of, of Stephen Taylor, even though Stephen Taylor, I think Stephen Taylor's off spin is is a little bit better. So that gives Seattle two left-handed batters who can who who can score at a very high strike rate so you can see there's a little bit of um in just in the first couple of rounds you can you can see the personalities or 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 the strategies of the teams playing out already seattle like i said doubling down on left-handed batting washington starting to to form a deep team there mi new york t20 hit batters for sure san francisco went with star power la went with star power with ali khan and armok chan and Team Texas went with bowling, you know, went with uh, fast bowling. Um, yeah, so without naming everybody, Swarb Netrabalkar, the former USA captain, went to Washington in the fourth round. Jessica Maholtra, who hit six sixes in an over versus PNG, went to the LA Knight Riders round. In fact, LA Knight Riders also got Natish Kumar from Canada, who is now living in Houston, Texas area. And Ali Sheikh was drafted, USA under-19 left-arm spinner, had a tremendous combine. And his combine boosted him ahead of the U23 round into the regular portion of the draft. So he was drafted outside of his uh, outside of that age group pick. He was taken in the sixth round. So two more rounds happened before the U23 round. So that's that's pretty awesome that they that they put so much faith in a guy who had such a good a good turn. And that was actually really Ali Sheikh's best um, performance on on a stage that big uh, on the you know on a senior stage that big. Sami Aslam went all the way down to the fifth round to team team Texas. Now he he played internationally for Pakistan and kind of the knock on him is that he goes slowly. He bats slowly, but uh if you look at his team in minor league cricket, he does that because he has to be an anchor. I think he takes too much responsibility and that's what brought him into that uh you know, but lowered his his draft stock a little bit. But yeah, also Nosh Kanjigi went in in the fourth round to MI New York or my New York, Mumbai, Mumbai Indians, New York. <laughs> but yeah, Nosh went in the fourth round, which was very interesting. He went up ahead of any other left arm orthodox spinner who has played for USA. And we know he, he hasn't even been in the USA T20 team since t- 2018, since before T20I was granted to all associates. He's one of those cricketers that as long as he's playing cricket, he's getting better at cricket. You know, he's he's not plateaued yet. He continues to improve. And that New York team, you have to hand it to them. They picked an awful lot of USA players in this in the team. They picked Steven Taylor, Nashkin Jiggy, Monong Patel, uh, Shayan Jahangir, and Kyle Phillip. And then their U23 was Saideep Ganesh. Every one of those guys has represented USA, and they have the most USA players on their team. And Jay Aaron Kumar 
is their assistant batting coach. I talked to Jay Wardeen, the coach of the team, and he told me that Jay Aaron Kumar played an integral role in selecting that team. So yeah, actually 16 players who have played for USA at one point or another were taken in the draft from the 54 players, which is, you know, about 30% of the draft was former USA players. A lot of people are complaining that not enough USA players were selected. But if you ask me going into the draft, I would not have told you 16 USA players would be taken. So with only six overseas announced so far, I'm not going to pick the teams based on that because not, some teams didn't announce any overseas. But based on the domestics, I really like the balance of the Washington team. You only have to play five domestics in an 11. So you don't have to look at depth so much, but I love the depth and balance of the Washington team. I really like, I think when you look at the top five for each of these teams or the top five or six for each of these teams, it's it's pretty good. There's some good parity here, but um, I'm most impressed by Washington, Seattle, uh, San Francisco, and, and Texas. I don't know, I just named two-thirds of the entire league there, but... Uh, <laughs> It's interesting the way that they built their teams. I look at Seattle team at some of the players they got later on in the draft, and I, and I think they have a lot of options. And same thing with Washington. Washington got some really good players late in the draft. So I, I like the Washington team. If I had to pick one, I I think Washington or or Seattle or Texas. Ah, it's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard. That's right. Yeah, you, you don't you don't need to decide just yet. It's still a while before the tournament starts. Right, and and, and outside of the cricketing of the actual the cricket that we're going to see, the quality cricket, who's going to win, all, all these questions. The, the things that I like to focus on were were the setups. The you know each each team has a different way of, of doing things, and I, I really you know we we often talk about the IPL and franchise cricket in general as 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 a monolith. You know we we often do that. Um, and you know, there's a reason we, we do that. It, it saves time and it, <laughs> but, um, each of these teams has a different personality, has a different way of, of, of thinking. And each of these teams will get to different levels of the potential of cricket in the USA and the potential of the major league minor league relationship, uh, as well in the USA major league, uh, relationship. And I think so. So right now I'm I'm trying to look at these teams as, uh, you know, you know, the, it is franchise cricket. So they're going to have the, they're going to have different motives than an NGB ought to have. But I also want to see the teams that because they're trying to take care of their own franchise, because they're trying to to be the best franchise in, in the league are going to to kind of as a byproduct of that actually do good things for cricket in the USA. <laughs> But um, <laughs> but with team the the Texas team the, the Texas Super Kings really impressed me. I didn't expect a IPL team to. Yes, they did choose. They did keep the the IPL name. Uh, but you know, if you're going to be a king in the USA uh, or in Texas, then you you better be a super king. And so, <laughs> so, so I think uh, I I I I loved the 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 entourage they had at the draft. First of all, I, I can't praise enough the idea of having the draft at the Houston uh, NASA Space Center at the Johnson, Lyndon B. Johnson Space Center in Houston. It was a great idea. The venue itself did kind of half the, the lifting for the, for the entire draft. What's more American than, than Texas and outer space? 
you know <laughs> so <laughs> so actually they should have been called the space cowboys that would have been cool but uh i mean i could i could get on board with that oh man me too i would love that but uh but yeah honestly they really impressed me the washington team with the, it to me is is also a very professionally run looking outfit their owner kind of concedes to the experts in in the setup which is not always going to happen in cricket in the USA. Usually the owners of, of teams, they want to get their hands on every single solution, every single problem. But the, the Texas team, what a great job they did showing up. They brought an entourage of people with cowboy hats on their, their ownership all showed up and they had cheerleaders. They had, they hired their own film crew basically to come out and record it. And they did a great job after the draft, making the players feel, feel welcome, you know, in, in, <laughs> in true, Texas fashion I heard that they actually flew some of the guys over to the Dallas stadium uh on Monday to take a look at at the stadium and then fly them back. So it was like it was like an episode of Dallas or something, you know, if if <laughs> if, if Dallas if there was a cricket team in the, in the in the in the TV show Dallas. But yeah, that impressed me just the way that they bent over backwards for, for their players. Yeah, you you mentioned it being in the Space Center and uh it seemed like a quite a fun event from the the footage that came out. Uh, just give us a bit of a an idea of the atmosphere since you were there, you know, in person. Oh, it was spectacular. First of all, that that whole space center is is really pretty cool. I mean, it's it's kind of dark with with a lot of lights around, a lot of bright lights. So, kids, when we got there to set up, it was still open, and there was an area shut off in the middle. Uh, so so when when everybody got there to set up, um, there were, you could see the the place was in full effect. It was crowded. People were looking at all the, the you know the different ex- exhibits and stuff. Um, at one point I got a drink, I got a glass of wine inside of a, like a giant Mars explainer, um, uh, <laughs> prop, <laughs> which was pretty neat. Um, but yeah, the, the setup was, was really, was really immaculate. It was, it was very cool. Yeah. We, we, it was funny because where we all, where, where everybody like kind of left their bags was this play area for kids on the second floor. <laughs> so things that you know, there were like moon landers hanging from the ceiling and it, it was just uh it was it was pretty awesome also there's an actual space shuttle right outside the entrance well, that's cool yeah so there, there was a rehearsal friday night and i went along with that and as as i was riding i was riding in a car that had a little bit of the windows were a little bit lower and as we pulled up I looked over and all I saw was a big airplane there. And I was like, well, that's interesting. A big airplane right outside of the thing. And then we went inside. And then when the draft actually happened on Sunday, I came back and I was in a pickup truck that had a really tall window. And I looked and I said, oh, my gosh, there's an there's an actual space shuttle on top of that airplane. <laughs> <laughs> it was like it was it was incredible. It was really a great move by uh, Major League Cricket to to put some American personality on the on the, on the league right away. As as fun as the draft uh, probably was, and, and I'm sure you've got some good memories from that, it it wouldn't be a USA update without some uh, chaos in the administrative side of things. Uh, some interesting developments over at USAC. Uh, first of all, the CEO resigned uh, sort of a week or two ago, uh, which is interesting considering the state of their finances and the fact they, as far as I know, they still haven't paid a bunch of players and contractors and whatnot. Uh, and then as the draft was kind of happening, uh, th- we saw this uh, announcement come out of USAC where they were basically threatening not to sanction Major League, even though <laughs> USAC had, uh, you know, they've, they've signed this 20-year contract with Major League to, to try and, you know, basically to legitimize it. So it's 
what, what what's going on? That's a really great question. Um, Peter Delapena's article uh, obviously pointed out that the ICC have alerted, you know, the nations who have t- players involved in the draft that, hey, th- the event's not sanctioned yet. And, it's, you know, obviously that's that's pr- probably just pretty on par with with that type of thing. Y- you know, I, I don't think the ICC sa- saying and Peter wasn't saying that it's not going to be sanctioned. It just hasn't been has, the paperwork hasn't been signed yet. Basically, there's an application sitting on their desk. Uh, who who knows whose desk right now because there's no CEO. According to the announcement, he had professional opportunities that he felt he needed to pursue. Um, I really don't have any comment on that. Other otherwise, I mean, there's speculations out there, but sitting on <laughs> sitting on somebody's desk that needs to be signed that will sanction both major league and minor league. Atul Rai, the chairman, has expressed displeasure. In both major league and minor league, he has given no real reasoning for it. Uh, he's been asked. He's been given no real, you know, details about why he feels they're they're being unfair. He's just said a lot of generalities. He did announce a town hall meeting. One of the things that Atul Rai has done so far is he'll send emails, you know, at nighttime, uh, <laughs> or he'll he'll write an email and send it to the entirety of U.S. Uh, voting body and. When you go to talk to some of the board members, that email is the first they heard of that particular announcement. And one of these emails was, we're going to have a town hall meeting about this, uh, about minor league cricket, so that the some of the owners and players who feel aggrieved can can express their, their grievances. Well, you know, look, anytime you have a league like this, uh, there's going to be people with grievances. It's going to happen. Uh, because minor league isn't perfect, because major league isn't perfect, is it worth shutting down the whole league when it's been the best thing going? I mean, we've had minor league cricket for two years now. It is not profitable. The owners are still going forward with it anyways. That is commendable. You know, this is being done for cricket. And uh, <clears throat> to shut all this stuff, or to threaten to shut this stuff down, or to posture as if you're willing to, to me, is just, it's just insane. You know, as much as in cricket, we all know you... you there are incremental gains, you know, if you're lucky. Every associate nation is working against a lot, and it can take all. It, all it takes is is one bad year for your nation to lose all of its progress. You know, you get one group in charge that that isn't plugged in the right way, or you or you just don't perform on the field. <laughs> you don't perform on the ground. And you can lose every, you can lose all, all the progress you've been building, building up for years. Associate cricket is a very fragile thing. So when you have something that's as close to a short thing as major league cricket has been, I don't know very many things that would justify risking this thing to launch when, you know, all these tens of millions have been poured into it by investors. Well, hopefully, uh, the ongoing USAC uh, drama doesn't cause too many problems for the major league which seems like it, it's likely to be a pretty good event all told uh thanks for joining us nate hayes yeah anytime nick i i, I love talking with you oh we love having you on the show and for any listeners who want a bit more information on the draft and and everything that went on uh check out the emerging cricket website and nate's uh rather long piece <laughs> with with all the details for you <laughs> thanks nick thanks for the plug Thanks to Nate again in the thick of it in the USA and hopefully for everyone's sake, Major League Cricket gets the green light sanction as well. Turning our attention to the Pacific now where the Men's and Women's Pacific Island Cricket Challenge has played out. We're lucky enough to have not only a CEO of one of the nations competing, but a player in the form of left-arm orthodox spinner Tim Cutler. Nick joined Tim to discuss both competitions and that magical fifer on the final day. 
Well, we have Tim Cutler back on the show after a, a bit of a break with a, a cyclone and some cricket that you've been playing as well as a birthday. Happy birthday, by the way, Tim. Thank you. 41 and uh, still going? Yes, uh, still going strong and uh, maybe shaping up for an appearance for the official Vanuatu team after turning out in the uh, non-official T20s, but we can we can get to that in a minute. Mm. Um, you've been at the Pacific Island Cricket Challenge with obviously with Vanuatu, uh, and on the men's side and the women's side, you're both joined by Fiji, uh, a Papua New Guinea uh, representative 11, at least for the men, it was kind of a second 11, and for the women it was the full first 11, as well as Samoa, and an Anzac Barbarians team made up of representatives from the Australian and New Zealand militaries. Uh, So this tournament was organised by the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, or DFAT, uh, as well as the Australian military. Uh, Can you just explain a bit uh, what's what's going on with that and how it came to be? Yeah, I think it's cricket's benefiting, I think, from Australia's warmer hug of the Pacific and looking to create a more more unity within the region and through this uh, using cricket, which us as the, the beneficiaries as the Pacific ICC members, but it also went beyond the ICC members as well. They did a skill development program in the week leading up to the event and they had representatives from from new caledonia there as well obviously a a non-icc member there despite being part of france you know um, new caledonia playing their traditional versions of the game and also looking to develop the sport more so yeah that benefited us from i think the first ever side-by-side men's and women's tournament that uh, any of the countries had ever been involved in i know it's the first time that the Vanuatu's ever sent two senior sides side-by-side to an event. So with DFAT uh, and the Australian military organising this, uh, the ANZAC team, this is actually a question I couldn't work out. Was it people that are currently serving in the military or is it just sort of people who have at various points been involved with the military? Uh, they have to all be current serving personnel. I think there's actually a minimum term length as well for, for those to represent the team. In, in Australia's sense, you have services cricket when the Navy, Army and Air Force each have a representative side, both men's and women's that play against each other, and then they pick a combined services side to represent Australian armed services against other countries. I think there's some great stories are told over the time there of, of tours, both outgoing and incoming and playing against some amazing teams. I think the ones most highly spoken of were, were Pakistan, where the entire team all had first-class experience or at least uh, very high-class experience. So uh, I think they actually played against uh, Fakhar Zaman when he was a young up-and-comer and also in the uh, the Air Force from wow. memory. But uh, the... This combined team um, was supposed to be picked out of a a tour from the Australian Combined Services team to New Zealand, but which was unfortunately cancelled because of the cyclone that hit New Zealand. So there was a couple of um, special invitees, I think you could say both male and female, in the uh, from New Zealand in the in the combined ANZAC side, and no, it was. It was great to to play against these teams, and I think uh, I've said it to a few people already. It we really, uh, if you if you needed reinvigoration of of why we do what we do, it was to see the looks on these services personnel's faces, who've I'm sure seen a lot of things in in their time, but to see them overawed uh, and so impressed with the the talent on show across the the Pacific Nation teams, both male and female, and uh, just to see their enthusiasm for the event, and especially a lot of them who played a lot of these. Um, similar tournaments before to get so much out of it so it was really good to have their involvement and uh, and their support 
Yeah, and the uh, the men's team put up a pretty competitive side. They actually uh, beat the PNG 11 in one of their matches. Uh, the women's team did struggle a bit more. Just give us a bit of a sense of the atmosphere. You know, we were watching on a pretty basic stream. It still looked like a nice venue, some some lovely houses in the background, a nice open park in Fiji there. What was the tournament like uh, from an atmosphere perspective? Yeah, well, Albert Park is this huge rectangular ground that's been uh, done up in the last few years. I think it used to suffer from flooding, I was told, until it was built up. And it's got these huge, big colonial buildings uh, around it that sort of uh, run along the boundary, both at, at one side at the Grand Pacific Hotel and then uh, and then other governmental buildings. I think it might be the High Court across the road. I probably should know these things. But uh, all the teams were staying only walking distance from the field. These two huge cricket field side by side both international size for for men uh, or women uh, I think normally that has about eight rugby fields out there as we saw when the when the games finished of an evening uh, almost seconds after our uh, stumps were pulled you saw the most amazing games of rugby where about 50 people would play <laughs> you know 25 on each team playing no touch rugby and if you wanted to, to see or to know how and why the Fijian Rugby sevens team is so talented. You only have to watch this game going out in the field of some of the, the moves you'd see there. And like no touch rugby, as you can imagine, they're um they're throwing caution to the wind with their uh, with their with their plays. But uh, if anyone ever said to you that you know why would you want to play cricket? It's a boring game. You just sit there in the field. I've watched people at the end of a twenty five person backline patiently wait, never get annoyed in a game that went for sort of half an hour. So if people can do that playing <laughs> rugby, I don't know why people can say playing cricket is ever boring. But there's a great view from the, the grandstand there. And, and as you said, that the stream from the camera is up in that, in that stand as well. And then to finish it all off, there was a great closing ceremony with uh, singing and performing from various teams and, and people. And you can see the, the sound go out across the, across the field, including when the, uh, the national anthem was played, when the entire field stopped doing what they were doing and stood to attention to uh, to hear the Fiji national anthem. So that was a pretty cool moment as well. Sounds like a, a great tour. Um, and in terms of the on-field performance, Vanuatu made the final in both formats, men's and women's, but they couldn't get past PNG. The I guess the, the region-level boss for Vanuatu is always going to be PNG, uh, at least at the moment, in, in, in the East Asia-Pacific area and uh, so it was once again a PNG with a comfortable win uh, in both men's and women's formats. I guess looking at the men's side first because that's the team you were in, <laughs> um, we, we saw interestingly the Barbarians, the Anzac Barbarians actually beat PNG which I think is, is worth bringing up um, because your team beat the Barbarians and uh, you, uh, we, we dissected your performance against them, uh, <laughs> against them already but... Um, yes, I heard it. You, you, yeah, I... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there were some other performers uh, as well finding form. Nalan Nipico was pretty notable. Uh, he was well in the runs in most of the games. Uh, we also saw a couple of new faces. So maybe take us through some of the key performers, uh, not including yourself, um, across the Vanuatu uh, men's team. Well, Nalan had a, a great event. He was by far and away the best men's player there, and he won player of the tournament uh, for the male side. Um, he was, I think he scored 160 runs more than the, the closest chaser behind him. And he wasn't bowling at full pace either. I think after hurting his hamstring in the last two tours, 
I think he was just trying to conserve his energy a bit, also considering that we played six days on the bounce and he played every game. You know, it was great of the tournament organisers to, to rejig the format after we flew in late, after issues with flight connections and whatnot, and us flying in on the, the Sunday nights close to midnight and the women having their first game in the morning and men playing in the afternoon, then to play six days on the bounce. I think conservation was, was key there. And that was actually why I was allowed to to play, as did uh, Apollinaire Stephen, who'd gone there as a, as a coach, resting his sort of recovering knee. But both of us were allowed to play, creating an extended squad of 16 rather than the normal 14. Um, and then because I'm not eligible yet, I was only allowed to play in those, those non-internationals. But no, Nalan was great. It'd be great for him to follow on that form as we head into the regional final in July. Uh, Patrick had his miserly best as always with the ball and... Uh, his hands in the field as, as good as ever, but I think by his own admission he'll probably yeah struggled for runs. So he didn't get off to the starts he needed to with the bat. I don't think he scored more than the teens, and I think his dismissal in the final, hitting a half tracker um, off his third ball or fourth ball down um, cow corner's throat, probably typified um, his his tournament. Unfortunately, that was sort of when we really need him. Junior Kautzpahl was his sort of effervescent self uh, at, at three but I think impressive in this tournament was uh, Ronald Tari sort of marshalling the troops batting sort of five and six depending whether Andrew Mansali was playing and sort of really helped us win or get in winning positions in, in, in a couple of games so that was really good with the with the bat and I think the ball we saw some, I think it was, was quite sort of up and downish so Godfrey Mangal making his debut in Malaysia in the 50 over format coming in to the side playing T20s for the first time for Vanuatu bowled well and was dangerous good to see when he was when he was on song and like I said with with Patrick metronomic best uh, was was good and, and Josh Razu I think is just a I don't want to call him mercurial because he's he's generally performing but him bowling off spin um, against a slew of right-handers and, and not going for many runs was just great throughout the tournament and played a couple of key key innings as well just on the final though uh five wickets to tim cutler hey uh talk us through your performance uh, so bez and i don't need to dissect it on on your behalf <laughs> um oh, look, it's just one of those days i think when you're a bowler in t20 cricket and you only get 24 balls you try and do your best to bowl your best ball over and over and over and be clear with your plans um and you know, be making the, the batter do something different uh, outside their comfort zone rather than giving freebies. I think after my first ball was quite short um, and was sort of pulled out to to, to square, the, people may have thought, oh, God, it's all happening again. But uh, to get uh, Legasiaka, who we we dropped only, I think, the over before for Allah that probably a catch that should have been taken to, to nick him off. I think from that point forward, my, my tail was definitely up and I, I, I bowled a sort of a different pace and, and length to what I had in the games before. I was just trying to bowl a, li- a little bit shorter of a length and make it hard, especially for my Maru Dai to get to get under it, not being the, the tallest guy if the ball was sort of coming up at him a bit. And he didn't seem that like he wanted to come at me. Um, but those first two wickets to get Jason Keeler after he hit me for like three sixes in the game before I sort of came around, <laughs> came over the wicket, over the wicket and changed the angle a bit because I think when I came around, uh, it just gave him too much of an angle to freeze arms. So again, to get them both in that first over was great. I think it was just more pleasing not to get hit for, hit for a boundary and then to get well to be kept on for the last over by by Pat was great and then to get three wickets in an over then you know you've got to got to be happy with that. But uh, look at 134. You know, you, you think, especially playing on synthetic and with the, the strike power we had up top, you really need to be winning those games. And especially against 
a, a second string PNG team, or albeit with Nasana Pakana, who's played a lot of good cricket and is a really good player and proved his medal at the back end of that of that innings for us to be. I can say us because I was actually playing. <laughs> <laughs> to, yeah, to be five wickets in hand, thirty three off thirty balls. You can't be losing those games. Um, so that was really frustrating to see. So to hear your, your commentary on how I felt after those first four balls against the Anzac Barbarians, I, I felt worse and probably showed it um, when we didn't get the runs uh, because that was really something that deserved, <clears throat> I say deserved, uh, after everything that we'd been through the last few weeks to get there the 11th hour to play six games in a row to have your CEO wheeled out there uh, <laughs> and that just would have really been great I think for the team but in some ways maybe losing that's better because we're going to learn more lessons around how to bat and how to play smarter cricket. Congratulations to PNG. Uh, some very, as you say, some very experienced players involved in that uh, that PNG second 11 and I guess it's kind of a, a stress test for the rest of the region. Now Samoa it's maybe a little bit harsh to judge them on their performance here because they were playing somewhat experimental 11. Uh, a lot of, uh, I believe a lot of the young guys coming through the under-19 setup. So maybe you can give us your assessment of, of Samoa and, and what you think of their youth crop because the under-19s qualifier is coming up, uh, the, the regional East Asia Pacific uh, qualifier for the under-19s World Cup. That's coming up later in the year. Yeah, that's only in a few weeks. That'll be June in, in Darwin. And I think... Uh Unlike other qualifiers, it's going to be headlined by the fact that uh, one of the big boys in, in New Zealand will be falling back to regional qualifiers. New, New Zealand didn't send a team to the last under-19 World Cup because of COVID concerns, and by that uh, reasoning, they finished too far down the ladder, meaning they go back to regional qualifiers. So it's going to be great experience, I think, for everyone playing against those teams, but um, bang on about the team that Samoa had. They had all locally-based players, unlike the team they brought to the Pacific qualifier back in September when they had probably four or five from the top 11 were New Zealand based. So uh, from the out, there's some young, talented players there. So it'll be interesting to see the genesis of, of that both through the under-19s into future ICC tournaments because if... Uh, well, if we, if we carry on with uh, T20 World Cups so every two years, that means we're going to be up for another Pacific qualifier uh, next year already. So interesting to see how many of those will make it through into that, that main squad. Um, they gave PNG a scare in the semi-final. They kept PNG, I think, to 124, but they just weren't able to, to chase it down. And that, that would have been a real boil over if uh, Samoa, after uh, not looking like they were going to get off the bottom of the table in the, the round robin, and the reason why they made the semifinals is because the Anzac sides fell out of contention um, for the finals. And that would have been very interesting if it was going to be a Vanuatu-Samoa final, uh, but PNG scraped through there. So, yeah, that's yeah interesting to see the fact that they would send that experimental team knowing that we were still there playing T20 internationals. The matches between Fiji, Samoa and ourselves were all T20Is. So that's good from a Vanuatu point of view, getting all the wins there. And yeah, I think yeah, it's interesting kind of knowing where Fiji have been and the fact that they were the, you know, apart from PNG that have always been there, but they were knocking on the door in the in the late uh, the late noughties when they were in the, the higher uh, World Cricket League divisions. Um, but as the divisions were reduced, uh, Fiji started falling back as well. And I think you'd say have, have safely been sort of overtaken by, by Vanuatu in the last sort of five to five to eight years. So you just wonder if there's a, a path back because watching them on the field and watching the other sports going on, it, the, 
it's not a lack of talent or a lack of love of sport or engagement with sport there that's the issue. So just like to think that hopefully this tournament will, will help in maybe jumpstart the game there again. I know that the Anzac Barbarians got out to, I think, about 20 schools during the time they were there and saw hundreds of kids and uh, ran Creo programs and all those schools. So you can only hope that hopefully that gets the, uh, the ball rolling again for Fiji. Yeah, Fiji, an interesting case. Uh, the cricket's been played there uh, in the Pacific for, well, I mean, all across the Pacific, but, you know, in Fiji for you know, well over a century, and they have a long history of it. And, you know, they've, yeah, they've always sort of been there or thereabouts. But as you say, I think Vanuatu are, uh, are definitely, well, the, the second team in the Pacific at the moment behind PNG, having overtaken Fiji for that position. Moving across to the women's tournament was sort of much the same story. Uh, Vanuatu... Uh, too good for everyone else except the PNG side, which uh, in this case was actually a full senior 11. Uh, the PNG women here are pretty dominant, really. They beat everyone very comprehensively, thrashed Vanuatu in the final. Uh, they didn't really look troubled in any of their matches. Uh, Vanuatu, on the other hand, yes, they did lose to PNG in the final, uh, but they were, again, clearly the second best team in, in, in group play. Uh, so it's it's kind of this this awkward position where Vanuatu's outstripped the the rest of the competition in the Pacific, but they they can't seem to get past PNG. So what went wrong there, Tim? Because I mean, to my eyes, it looks like it's kind of a a case of basically the usual suspects in uh, you know Selena Solomon, Valentina Langiatu, Rachel Andrew uh, were were carrying the side, and there wasn't much else support from from the rest of the team. Uh, was there any other sort of talent coming through that you you kept an eye on? Well, I think your point about PNG is is valid, uh, and I th- I guess my fear as a as an observer is the sort of stratification of Pacific cricket and it kind of not benefiting anybody. You know, the amount of money um, spent to get to this tour by both ourselves and and PNG. You know, you, you're talking about over between us over $150,000 in flights despite everything else being covered and if I'm PNG and looking at the results on field as much as it's great to be part of that you think well how much are, are our players getting out of that and I think it just shows well A the talent that's on show um, and on tap in, in the PNG women's team and maybe we're seeing them at the crest of their wave uh, hopefully there's there's further to go and they've got more in the in the hutches to sort of replenish as, as players get older and, and drop out of the game but um, they, they look really really good but just shows the amount of also having the amount of cricket that they've been able to play in the last in the last year and a bit versus uh, everyone else in the Pacific whose first games were in October at the Pacific Cup but from a Vanuatu point of view I'd say it was a quite an, a young almost experimental developmental team in that you may have noticed from the the team squad there was a majority of those from uh, the melee club and maybe a couple of names that played in the Pacific Cup that that weren't there. So I'd say that you're probably seeing the sort of the next generation coming through there with Gillian Chilia, for example, who's I think just turned 18 or maybe almost 18, mm. taking the gloves. I think there's still yeah a lot of buzz around her. Yeah, so it's one of one of many Chilias and Mansalis. Uh, uh, in, in the team, so it's sort of a mix of of youth and and some players that have been around for a while. For example, you know Marcelina uh, Mete, the uh, off spinner who actually made team of the tournament. Um, you know, is not that many years behind me and very very experienced. Um, 
but I guess the question is how much time will someone like that have in the squad? I'd say if we're picking our best team, if everyone was available, you'd probably see two or three changes there. But now you were right about Valenta, Rachel and Selena. I think we need to to work harder to sort of really upskilling the rest of the squad to uh, to be helping those three players out to make sure that we're not always relying on those three. There's a couple of good performers there in, in the middle. Um, Leymara Tastuki's bowling, for example, can be very tight and a little... Uh, sneaky with little little in swingers that I think on on the right type of wickets could uh, could be quite um, strangling. Str- probably not at a sort of a Chinita type level from Thailand without the pace, but could be quite quite dangerous to players who are trying to uh, trying to attack. Um, but I think we'll see over the the coming months as we lead into August September when we've got the the EAP Women's T20 World Cup qualifier. Looking across at the other the other teams in the Pacific, there Fiji on the women's side seems to be catching up with Samoa, who um, not too long ago were, were one of the leading women's teams, um, at least on the rankings. And um, yeah, it looks like Samoa's just slipping up a bit. Um, they they were missing a couple of their sort of senior players. But uh, do you think this is also a case of the Fijian women catching up a bit? Because they've they've been somewhat off the pace uh, in recent times in the Pacific, or or is it yeah more a case of the like the men's team they they didn't have their full strength eleven? Yeah, I would like to say it was Fiji catching up, but uh, apart from their captain sort of bopping it everywhere, um, Samoa again a similar situation to their men's where they picked a hundred percent locally based team, and definitely with an eye to the future as well. So no Regina Lilly and I'm missing a couple of the other key players as well that are based in New Zealand. I think Regina's in uh, in the UK these days, but um, I'm not sure whether they will have their NZ, well, overseas-based players for the qualifier at the end of the year. I think for the quality of the tournament, I hope that they do. But um, yeah, I think they're in the same position as their men. So playing, like I said, local developmental sort of talent-based team so no I don't think it was so much Fiji catching up just sort of Samoa coming there with a a strategy of of growing. Yeah and I guess looking back to the administrative side of things I think this is um, a a very positive I mean as an Australian citizen I I would I would say this is some you know tax money well spent uh, engaging with the Pacific and um, you know improving relations between some countries where not to get too political but in the past uh, Australia's relationship with the our friends in the Pacific has been a bit rocky, so this this might be a good uh, kind of reset from DFAT and uh, good initiative, and and hopefully we see more of it. No, I can only hope so. But uh, yeah, without I think last count was about half a million Australian dollars invested by the Australian Defence Force, and the majority came out of that budget from them as as, as well to pay for that. I think uh, all we had to pay was was flights getting there, and that, and that was a. A struggle in itself. We ended up having to fly the uh, the three hours from Vanuatu to Fiji uh, via a three and a half hour flight to Sydney and another five hour flight back to Fiji. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a little bit longer than than we we, we imagined. But um, no, it was a great event. I just I just hope there's some legacy or at least some lifespan to the to the event because we're, we're working hard and trying to establish that Pacific identity, or you can say maybe reestablish through the the Women's Pacific Cup. Um, but to have an event like this as well, I'd just like to think in the future we can sort of build from both of these events because it'd, it'd be, be sad to see the effort that's gone this to go to waste. But yeah, I think we can only just say thank you to the ADF for putting this on because I don't think you'll probably see an event like this without that type of support um, anywhere else because I, I you know, I don't can't see the ICC putting on an event this size sort of side by side with men's and women's and knowing the cost that went into it, it would be really prohibitive without without great commercial support. So I think it's a thanks again from us. 
Great to hear again from Tim and what sounds like a successful competition in Fiji, the Pacific Island Cricket Challenge. Finally, after an immense career in Scottish colours, Carl Kutzer announced his retirement in international cricket this week. Nick joined me to discuss a fine career and a lasting legacy on the emerging game. Nick, news that I don't think any of us wanted to hear. We knew it was coming. Doesn't make it any easier to digest. Kyle Kutzer finally retiring uh, from international cricket as a player. He had retired from T20 cricket last year. He's hung up his spikes in one-day international cricket as well after helping uh, the Scots top League 2, now being captained by Richie Barrington. Uh, He's taken up a, a coaching deal in... England uh, with the Northern Diamonds, uh, which is one of eight women's regional ECB hubs in, in, in England. Too good for him to turn down, but I think it's a good opportunity for us to, to celebrate Kyle Kutzer, who's been an emerging cricket ambassador. Uh, he was one of the first people to jump on when emerging cricket started. So I think we have quite an affinity with the former Scottish captain, who's been one of the greatest captains, I think, in associate cricket over the last decade or so. Uh, He's played international cricket for Scotland since he was 11 or 12 years old through the the youth ranks. Uh, He's 38 now. So, you know, you can look at a a huge career of of cricket from junior Scotland teams all the way through to uh, the likes of T20 World Cup wins, the massive hundred he scored against Bangladesh in the Cricket World Cup in 2015. He's seen quite a bit of it. And again, yeah, he is transitioning into coaching. He has done some coaching in the past as well. Uh, we've seen him in some of the, the franchise leagues that have popped up in the associate world. Uh, Nepal, one of them. Uh, he was in Canada. He was one of the, the leading voices when uh, the players weren't too happy there, considering everything that went down in the global T20 league in Canada as well. So he's been at the fore for players and, and, and players' rights and players' voices, which is crucial as well. So he's been a leader in every sense of the word, uh, 110 matches as captain in all international formats. Uh, some of the other stats here, uh, you know, are, are mind blowing. He was obviously there for England's uh, the win over England. Uh, he's got an MBE just to kind of chuck it in as well. Associate Men's Cricketer of the Decade, the ICC Award in 2020. Uh, captain Scotland under 15, under 17, and under 19 levels. Led them to a Super 12 qualification at the 2021 T20 World Cup. First ever Cricket World Cup century. I mean, I think you struggle to, to run out of, you know, you can't really run out of superlatives for someone of Kyle Kutz's ilk, Nick. And, and, and he leaves a big hole for, for Scotland to try and fill. Yeah, I mean, obviously he's been a, a brilliant servant of the game for Scotland for, well, yeah, as you say, uh, pretty close to 20 years. Um, yeah, a magnificent career, uh, one of the real powerhouses of emerging and associate cricket over this time. One thing just on his retirement, though, I think is worth mentioning is that he, he you know, he didn't just sort of stick around and try and hang on to make it to the next tournament or you know, if he felt that he wasn't contributing, he he called it quits and, and moved on. And, and I think that's really impressive for a guy who's been in the team for so long. Um, you know, he gave up the captaincy, he gave up his T20. He, he's just, you know, he we, we do see a lot of the time, I mean, especially in associate cricket where it's hard to replace senior guys that the senior guys can just kind of cling on a bit too long. Um, so I'm, I'm very impressed by Kyle Kutzer. And, you know, the fact that he's calling it quits now just speaks to you know, how, he's, how he's conducted himself over his whole career. You know, he's always tried to do what's best for the Scottish team. And, and you know, even in retirement, he's, he's doing that. So 
yeah, hats off to him for that. Um, just looking across his numbers, you know, he's been pretty consistent in his career against whenever Scotland have come up against full member opposition, you know, he has stepped up and you know, his overall record in ODIs and list A, mid to late 30s average uh, strike rate in the early 80s is pretty solid, but he's not noticeably worse against any particular teams. You know, he's <laughs> he averages 70 against Zimbabwe, uh, full member, obviously, in the limited opportunities he's had, um, you know, that century against Bangladesh, against England, he hit 350s in five appearances. So he's been there or thereabouts. And he's kind of an example of why it's such a shame that associate cricket, you know, hasn't had the opportunities that it deserves over the years. Because, you know, people always say, oh, well, you know, can they do it at the top level? Well, Kyle Kutzer was able to do it at the top level for a, a, a decade plus. Yeah, it's going to be tough for them to move on, but a, a brilliant career and, and just a, a really down-to-earth guy. I think the the Diamonds are going to do very well out of uh, that association with him. I know he's done a little bit of consulting work, I think, in the England women's setup. So yes. uh, I, that seems like a, an interesting uh, career path forward for him. Hopefully, Scotland can get him back in some capacity, at least, to kind of pass on his wisdom to the next generation and maybe he can coach the Scottish women's team if, if that seems to be a passion of, of his in women's cricket you know I think not enough ex-players who look to go into coaching uh, unnecessarily uh, going into the women's game so I think that could be something to keep an eye on but uh, yeah uh, what's to say about Carl Kutzer that hasn't already been said you know he's just a, a brilliant servant of the Scottish game and uh, he'll, he'll be sorely missed. He stood or he stepped away from from playing for Scotland at a time where he felt he couldn't contribute and that other players in the past have, uh, you know, in associate cricket or outside of associate cricket have hung on too long. You know, this is a guy who retired from T20 international cricket in the build-up to the Australian T20 World Cup in 2022 that Scotland had already qualified for. You know, there was a spot there for him if if he wanted it and if he wanted to, to hang around. And it's the same with this Cricket World Cup qualifier coming up where Scotland have a huge chance of of upsetting someone in this qualifier to ensure that they finish in a top two spot to qualify for this 10-team World Cup. And we know that they were unlucky against the West Indies uh, at the last Cricket World Cup qualifier. And there's every reason that Kyle Kutzer could have done the same here and and played on and played in that tournament. But he felt that he, he couldn't quite be the man in that situation to do it. And I think, I still think Scotland will be at a loss in this Cricket World Cup qualifier coming up without him opening the batting. But look, yeah, again... You know, he, he stepped away at what he has felt is the perfect time and, and Scotland cricket can can move forward and, and find the solution, you know, with him gone. I think they will be at a loss if, if they don't bring him back in in some capacity, whether it be in, in a mentoring role or in a, in a coaching setup. Yeah, a true legend of the associate game and one of those names that every time you saw Scotland play, uh, that name was front and centre at the top of uh, the scorecard for Scotland, just an ever-present and... Uh, yeah, they're, they're going to need to... Whoever steps up and opens the batting for them, especially in one-day cricket, has uh, some big shoes to fill. Yeah, I mean, he always he always seemed to turn it up on the big stage, you know, that, that ton of, in the World Cup. He hit, I think it was 70 or so in that famous ODI victory against England. You know, he's just he's always stepping up to the level that Scotland needed him. And, yeah, I, I think... Yeah, it's going to be weird seeing a Scotland team sheet without Kyle Kutzer at the top of the order. 
Certainly will be as Scotland try to qualify for Cricket World Cup 2023 without him. Once again, congratulations, Kyle, on a wonderful career. Finally, a congratulations to Dreux of France, who took out the 2023 European Cricket League, defeating England's Hornchurch in the final. Dreux made 131 in their 10 overs, holding their opponents to 69 for 8 and winning by 62 runs. We'll look at Dreux's run in more depth next week, but that's everything in the Emerging game for now. For more, log on to EmergingCricket.com and across our social media channels. Once again, thanks for joining us on another EC pod as we approach 200 shows. Thanks once again, and we'll talk to you next week.